Appreciate that. As some of you may have uh, noticed, may not have noticed, I'm not sure how, uh, how much you have an attention to detail, but we had our guest musician with us on the piano, Miss Donna. We thank you so much for filling in and helping us out. It was wonderful. Um, I tell you this, uh, from my own opinion, um, having musicians is always better than not having musicians, because when we don't have anybody and Phil and I are forced to sing a cappella, it is just not good for you guys. It really isn't. Um, so I know it, it's bad on the ears. Um, I encourage you guys to open up to uh, the book of John, as uh, we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the book of John. In fact, if, if you spend any length of time uh, sitting under any of my teaching, you'll see that John tends to be um, a book that I go back to more often than not. Um, it definitely is one of those books that's impactful, it's powerful, um, it opens my mind and my eyes, and I've spent the majority of my adult life studying the book of John, and it is one of the most powerful and well-thought-out works that we have in the New Testament. I would say if you could only read one or two, maybe even three books in the New Testament, John should be on that list. Um, and if, if you ask me for an order, I would say John... James and Romans. Um, if you just had those three books, you would you would spend the rest of your life um, trying to puzzle out just one of them, let alone all three. But all three of those is trying to divide a, a, a divine a, a rule of life. Um, you could do that easily with those three books. So this morning, uh, the title of my sermon is is What is in Your Well? And the reason why I chose this particular topic this week is because we're on this nuts and bolts, this basic tools of Christianity, how we, how we live in this world, how we fit in this world. And, and you can't have a discussion about that until you really reach deep into John. And John is one of these wonderful books that allows us the opportunity to see into the life of Jesus in a way that's just, it really is different than any of the other gospel writers. And that's one of the reasons why we have four Gospels, but we, most theologians divide them up into two ways. We have three synoptic Gospels. That's the Gospels that follow the life of Christ, and they pretty much give you a short synopsis of, of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have John, which is a standalone Gospel that is, is, is similar in many ways, but different in a lot of ways than the other three writers. And so a lot of people put John in its own category, and there's a reason for that. You see, John wasn't writing in the beginning of the, of the church history. He wasn't writing at a time when the memories were fresh. He wasn't writing in a time when, when the church was in its infancy. John was writing in the, in about 40 or 50 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He was writing from a time when there was no other, as far as we know, living individual on earth that had walked and talked with Jesus Christ. He was writing down the final thoughts, if you will, of a life well lived with Jesus Christ. This is also written by the only human being that we know of that called himself Jesus' best friend. And so that's kind of interesting too. And if you want to go a step further, we can say that John also had a greater insight because there were 12 apostles, we know that. We know that Judas Iscariot um, walked away and we know that Paul was ushered in after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So he still had 12 apostles. But we also know that there was three that were special to Jesus, and that was Peter, James, and John. And we know of those three, John held a special place. John was, along with Andrew, the first disciple of Jesus. And so John has a 
place of presence in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ that's a little bit different than his brothers. And he had a ministry that lasted longer than any of the other apostles. And so when we look at this, as John is looking at the end of his life, and you know, I tell you, I've met some older folks and met some younger folks in my ministry, and it seems like the older we get, the less we are concerned about the, uh, the applause of men. The older we get, the less we're concerned about what other people think about what we say, who we are, what we wear. It's like things, things sort of fall off the edges when you start looking at life at 80 or, or 70 or 90 because there are different things that you really care about, right? Um, I know if you sat down and talked with my brother Gary, who is a phenomenal and amazing man in and of himself, I mean, there are he's a lot more direct. He'll be the first one to tell you. He's got less time here on earth to beat around the bush, right? So he's, he wants to get right to the heart of the matter, tell you what he thinks, and move forward. And that's how Gary is. Well, that's how John was, right? He didn't care so much about that. So he was able to, he was able to cut through a lot of the fluff and focus on the essence of who Jesus was. And I'll tell you, you'll be hard-pressed to find a better storyteller than John. Um, as a professional storyteller, I can tell you this. I have a hard time sharing stories with the same level of eloquence and ability that John did. John was able to weave narratives together like nobody's business. And he was able to weave narratives that have double, triple, quadruple meanings all into one, in one beautiful and amazing package. And the best part about it is he's just not pulling stories out. He's pulling actual events that really happened, but at the same time tying them together. I tell you, if you just read chapter 3 and chapter 4 in the book of John and spent the next 10 years just reading chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the book of John, you would have enough meat spiritually to chew on for the rest of your life. I'm telling you now, John is a meaty book. And chapter 3 and chapter 4, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, truly amazing. And so this is where we're at. We're at that scene with the woman at the well. I'm going to start off in verse 7. I could go through the uh, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you a synopsis. Jesus was walking. He was enjoying his time in, in, uh, in, in Galilee. He was moving towards Jerusalem. He wanted to get into, um, into uh, Jerusalem. And so he, was, he had to go through Samaria to do that. And in the midst of all that walking and talking and praising the Lord and preaching and teaching, he got really tired. And so it's at that point in his weariness that he sits down at the edge of a village as his disciples go off to find food. And that's where we are in verse 7. It says, it came about a woman of Samaria to, uh, so there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And there's a parenthesis here for because John wanted to give us some context as he's writing to people who don't know what's going on here. He said, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And verse 10, Jesus continues and answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was um, and, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now I want to stop there for a second because, I mean, we're going to go further but I just want to stop here and let this sort of sink in, digest in exactly what's happening here. 
You know, I tell you, this is a really powerful moment. And this whole scene, just it just smacks of like everything the Bible has to teach. Everything that Jesus is bringing in comes out in the very beginning there. And I don't know about you guys, but those of you that are really good biblical scholars, I know Vince is in the back there and his mind's already spinning about all the different auspicious meetings that happen around wells in the Old Testament. I mean, there's some serious well work that's going on in the Old Testament and the New. And Jesus knows this, right? I'm almost at the point where I'm thinking, I need to dig myself a well in my house. Because of all the great things that happen around wells, you would think everybody would want one in their backyard. Well work was an amazing thing in that life, right? And of course, we're saying this to people that live in 21st century North America, where all you have to do is this, and you get all the water you want. In fact, if you don't do this, you'll get too much water, right? Into a, Speaking into a, a reading into a time when, when they didn't have that kind of running water, you know? So I understand there's some disconnect there in our culture, but there you, kill, you still can't, you can't escape to, to hear the echoes from the Old Testament. I'm hearing, I'm seeing in my visions of, of Rachel and Rebecca. Both met their destinies at a well. I'm thinking about Hagar, the slave wife of Abraham, who also met God at a well. I'm thinking of, of Zephorah, who met her destiny in Moses at a well. I'm thinking of the wells of the past. And you know Jesus was too, right? You know this, this, this part of Jesus' divine journey as he's marching his direction, going there. And John gives us the indication that this was a divine meeting, that this had to take place, that this, this connection between this Samaritan woman, who, by the way, we don't ever know her name. We're never told this woman's name. We're told a lot about her, but we're never given her name. We heard Nicodemus's name, but we never heard her name. And it goes right back to this truly fascinating technique that John is able to do. We are so immersed in the story. We've just left Nicodemus that came to Jesus at night, and now we're flowing into the middle of the day, noon, as a woman comes to the well. And all of a sudden, our imagination just erupts in all the possibilities. Why is she coming at noon? Women normally come in the morning and the evening. Why is she there? Of course, we have suppositions and ideas, and the later conversation of Jesus, we can get a picture of her life. We feel like she's not completely connected to the world around her, and she is the exact person that Jesus needs to connect to. And while Jesus is sitting here resting in a time of rest, the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And this arrival of a woman sets up a crisis of literally biblical proportions because the traditional Jewish custom of the day wouldn't allow Jesus or a Jewish man of any kind to be able to connect and interact with Samaritans. Now, there is this idea that everybody says, well, Jesus purposely chose to walk through Samaria and that Jewish men just didn't do that. And that's not necessarily true. If you read Josephus, you realize that, that was, there was a certain group of individuals that refused to walk through Samaria, but in order to, to avoid Samaria, they had to walk through Gentile territory. And so a lot of people will oftentimes say, well, which is the greater, um, which would cause greater uh, contamination? You know, uh, connection with the Gentile world or connection with the Samaritan world. And I think that's up for debate. There were a few people that, that, that avoided this, but most would walk through. But the idea that Jesus sat down at the well outside the town 
and didn't go in is actually pretty telling too. And I was thinking about this this week as I was trying to figure out why he chose to sit at the well. Now, we all know that he was tired. I mean, John tells us that in verse 6. He was tired, being wearied from his journey. He sat by the well about the sixth hour. So about noon, he was sitting there. You know, so we, that's a good answer. But there's something else going on here too. Remember this. Now, Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. He was somebody that was pretty connected into that world. And for him to walk into a Samaritan village and to be able to acquire food and drink and whatever he needed would have put him at risk of by being seen by some people as contaminating himself and being himself impure, incapable of, of worshiping and doing his duties. And so by sitting at the well outside the town, some people say about a mile outside this town, it allowed his disciples to be that buffer zone, right? To leave the holy preacher outside uncontaminated and the workers, the disciples, to be able to go in and to do the work that was necessary to keep this ministry going. So again, everything here lines up with Jewish custom. This is exactly what the disciples of the master would do to protect their, their teacher, to protect their rabbi. They would, do, they would have this insulation moment. And so this led up, this gave, gives us the perfect opportunity for an amazing thing to happen. And that is the meeting between Jesus and this woman. She says, give me a drink. Now we all know, I mean, if you've been studying scripture for long enough, you know that this is a big deal. That this is uh, something that just doesn't happen every day. In fact, it's kind of funny. I was doing some reading uh, from the first century world um, uh, this week, and not only did Jewish men not like to talk to Samaritan women and or Samaritans, period, they didn't like to talk to Samaritans. They wouldn't even talk to... You know, Tom, I don't know if you realize this, but men in that day did not even talk to their wives in public. I mean, there was like a serious taboo about men speaking with women, even their own wives, in any way that might be construed as a public setting. I can't even begin to imagine that. And so for Jesus to sit down and talk with this Samaritan who is pretty low down there in the Jewish scale and a woman who is even further down. I mean, women were not even allowed to be taught the law because there were some people that were writing during that day that said women need to keep, keep their lane, right? Stay in their place. And their place was not studying men things, right? And so men things was, was, was defined as the law, all the intellectual pursuits of life. I know some of your ladies are already getting a little antsy. You're like, I'm glad I didn't live then. Well, you're probably right. You ought to be glad you didn't live then because you wouldn't even be able to do this right here, right? You would not be allowed to sit in this congregation. I would not be allowed to teach you anything because everybody knows that, you know, at least in that day and age, the women can't learn anyway, so why bother? That's pretty silly, isn't it? But yet, this is what Jesus is doing. He's breaking down all the barriers. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. He's reaching into a world where the greatest need was, but the greatest source of hope. And so Jesus is here now. He's talking with this woman. He asks her for water. And notice what she does. She's in verse 9, she says, she says to him, well, how is it that you, being a Jew, are going to ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? Now, there's a lot happening here. You can hear the snarkiness in her voice. You can hear her being a little, a little belligerent. But there's something else happening too. Something that goes without saying that's underneath the surface. You know, she's coming at the well. She's at an off time, which would signal to anybody that was looking that there was a, a reputation issue here, right? That there's something in this woman's past that makes her incapable of coming to the well during the time the regular women do. And so that means that there might be a question of her, you know, her character, and the fact that this single man all by himself at a well would talk to her and ask her, about, ask her to do something for him, it almost implies 
to someone that has a bad mind and maybe is a little sensitive about this that he was inquiring of whether or not she might have been a prostitute. Because there's a lot of that in the history. And I can almost hear her saying, what do you think I am? Why are you talking to me? I'm not that kind of girl. That's really what's happening here. She's on her guard. Her defenses are up. She doesn't know what's going to take place. She hasn't seen the future. Jesus did. He knows. This was a divine appointment. And look what he says. I love this part in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God. I just want to stop there for a second. You know, the Greek there is Doreen et Theos, the gift of God. When I thought about that, I'm thinking, we have a Doreen, and she is a gift. But this is the gift of God. He just says, if you knew the gift of God. I mean, I've read this passage probably 100 times or more. And I don't think I've ever focused on that phrase before. But look at what he says. If you knew the gift of God, he's basically saying, I am God's gift to you. He goes on to say, you would have asked me to give you living water. Now, at this point, everybody's like, oh, living water. Yeah, that's Jesus' trademark, right? That's what he said. He just, he's, he's, he's doing this, right? And then we, and those of us that are even deeper theologians, we, we tend to look at like, well, you know, um, he's, he's there. He's trying to, to give us uh, some deeper meaning. And he's trying to associate himself with living water because he wants to associate, associate himself with being the ultimate Moses. And, and he's, he's going to feed people on the, on the hill. And so he's going to give them bread like man in the wilderness. He's going to give them living water like Moses gave them water in the wilderness. So we can all go there. And that's pretty easy. But you know, this concept of, of living water is nothing new in the historical setting. And Jesus, although he was the Son of God, he was still an incredibly rich and intelligent individual that was able to bring forth the entirety of the wisdom of the Old Testament in such a way as to make it real for the people that was listening to him. And I don't know about you guys, but there are some serious verses, and I I had to write them down on a sheet of paper so that I'd have them, because I wanted you guys to hear these. This is the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, if you had asked the proper question, you would have asked for me to give you living water, right? If you knew who I was, I am the Son of God, I am the the gift of God to all of humanity. If you asked, I would have given you living water. And let's just recap what the Old Testament says about this. In Isaiah 1.16, the prophet says, wash your yourself, make yourselves clean, remove all of your evil deeds before, the, before my eyes and cease to do evil. This is from the Lord. Then he goes on and says, come everyone who thirsts to the waters and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. And that's just the first verse that Isaiah says. Isaiah has another one in chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. He says, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy. Sound familiar with what Jesus is going to say to this woman? Listen diligently, Isaiah says in chapter 55, 1 through 3. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come near to me and hear that your soul may live and that I will make an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. It's pretty powerful. 
Jeremiah goes on to say that in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me and the fountain of living waters, hewn out of cisterns of, the, of, the, of their own, broken the cisterns that can hold no water. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters. Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament, in chapter 14, verse 8, he says, On that day, that glorious day, the day of the coming of the Lord, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the east and half of them to the west. Living waters. Now, if the Samaritans focused, like the Jews, on not teaching their women the law, she may not have known anything about Isaiah or Zechariah or Jeremiah may not have understood any of that. And that's okay. She doesn't have to. But Jesus wanted to teach her. He didn't go into it. Notice, he never once gave her a Bible verse in this. He never once pulled out. He said, well, Isaiah says this, this, and this. He just was speaking to her. But you can hear the echoes coming through from the Old Testament into the New. And verse 11, she says, and he said to him, sir, look at him. She's, she's still trying to move around, right? She doesn't know where this conversation is going. She says, you have nothing to draw the water, draw, with the, uh, draw from the water, for this well is deep. And where then are you going to get this living water? So she's asking him basic questions. And it comes to our first point. I have three points. I do have three points. I like that. I try to have three points. Trying to do that more and more for you guys. So point number one is, when, and again, the, the title of the sermon is What's in Your Well? Well, we're talking about well living. We're talking about life well, if you will. Our well that we have, that we are, we are in the process of digging, that well that's going to run deep, right? So we see here, she says, the well here that she's pointing to is deep. How should our well be deep, Right? And I would like to say that we just dig down to hit water, which is what most people do, what most Christians do. They dig and they dig until they reach water, and then they say, done, problem solved, mission accomplished. It's deep enough, right? Some of you guys don't even bother digging wells. We just, we just set a bucket out and hope it rains, right? And that's good enough. But either way, we want to make sure that we have a well that's going to hold water. And rather than just dig until we reach the water table, we need to go even deeper than that. Because we know, if you, especially around here, I haven't dug any wells recently, but I've talked to a few of you guys that have recently, and we know that if you can dig down to a certain part, you can get water, right? There's like this one level down there where the water's at, but you don't want that water. Am I right, Tom? You don't want that first level of water, no. Because that's not really the water that you want to drink or bathe or even smell. It's just not the good water, right? The good water is you have to go a little deeper, right? And that's what we're doing here, right? So the first point in this, and for our life well, if we're going to ask ourselves what is in our well, we need, to, we need to know that our well is deep, right? We need to know that it's deep enough for the good water, the pure water to be there. And, he's, and she's saying, this water, is, this, this well is deep. Where is living water, Jesus? Of course, he doesn't know his name yet. She will. And then she asks a really snarky question. And now I, I still find it amazing that this woman who's by herself, a Samaritan, speaking to a Jewish man. So many taboos in this, in this whole situation scenario is just blowing up, right? And yet she is getting snarky. This is in a culture where men were allowed to beat women. They were allowed to be abusive. This is in a culture where a man's word in a court of law was all you really needed against a woman. And yet she's, she's, she's pretty uppity for a lady. She says, what, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you, who, uh, are you this, this, this wonderful and amazing individual? I mean, 
He's the one that gave us this water. Who are you? And this is where Jesus comes in. He says, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst. And the water that, that I will give him will be like a well of water springing up into eternal life. The words there for springing up is continually leaping. The water just never stops flowing. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. Continuously leaping. And this comes to, I guess, point number two. And I, maybe it's a stretch. We have to be real careful when we're looking at John. So many times we like to over-spiritualize the John. And it's easy to do. John is so rich. And, so, and it's so easy for us to jump right into that and make it go deeper. But I think that what a good principle here is this, is that we want a deep well. But as my brother Mike will tell you, that having a deep well is only part of the story. The other part of the story is maintaining it, right? Because if you don't maintain your well, pretty, pretty soon you're sucking mud. You're sucking things that you don't want in your well, right? And so you have to maintain that well. And by maintaining it, you're keeping it strong and vital and ready to be able to to be that water that springs up eternally. And we maintain that by maintaining our connection to Jesus Christ. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. And again, she's getting pretty snarky. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. And I won't have to come here and do all this work. It's interesting if you contrast this between what happened in Nicodemus, this previous chapter, there's still that stickiness where the individuals, both Nicodemus and this woman at the well, they can't quite, they can't quite get past the physical, right? They're not making that leap into the spiritual. And Jesus has a spiritual point, but, but she's not getting it. She's not making it. And neither did Nicodemus, and that's pretty sad. But he continues to say to her, he said, why don't you go and call your husband? And we can come here and have a discussion. So now it comes full circle, right? Now she knows that he's not here to engage anything that's, that's, that's bad. He's, he's actually a teacher. He's got something to say. And um, he wants to share it to the proper way, which is through her husband. And then her husband can privately give her any instruction that she needs, which is a good, proper Jewish way to, to respond to this. And this is where it gets a little crazy. This is where it gets a little different. You see, Jesus is, um, Jesus is doing something here right? You see, this question provides that perfect example for John to throw a bunch of irony and a bunch of other things in to really push forth the message that John wants to do. You see, Jesus is about to replace some serious symbols in the Jewish and Samaritan life and to put their focus back where it needs to be, back on God. And the woman answered and said, well, I have no husband. And he said to him correctly, you have no husband. But you've had five husbands. And the one whom you are with now is not your husband. For this you have said truthfully. And I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. But I'll tell you this. There have been those times in my life where I have walked into the presence of God accidentally. Can you do that? Phil, can you, can you walk in? Can you just like one moment you're having that transcendent on the hill sort of act self-actualization moment where, where you think you're like where you need to be and then all of a sudden God shows up and just blows everything out of proportion? I tell you, it's, it's the scariest thing on the planet to stand in the presence of somebody that knows everything about you, right? And I'm not just talking about everything that's, that's surface. I'm talking about everything about you. You know, to walk up there and say, hey, I know what you were doing last Thursday evening around 3 o'clock in the morning. 
Like, wait a minute. You're getting real personal real quick. We all have sins. We all have things that we struggle with. We all have areas that, that we continually fight with God about as we wrestle, as we grow, as we draw closer to Him. And to have God show up in this powerful way and to be able to just lay her sins out in a way that she was not expecting. Remember now, she's still dealing with this on a surface physical level and he just dives right deep, right into that moment of truth as he lets her know exactly where she is. You know, I I deal with sometimes folks that are hard to handle. You know, they have personalities that are just a little out there. And I know some of you are like, what do you do all week? You know, I I meet with folks. I talk with individuals. And and Phil will tell me. I mean, sometimes I actually go and I sit in Phil's classroom for a day. And he gives me that privilege. And I get a chance to sit sit with teenagers that are going through a crisis of everything. Because everything a teenager does at every minute is a crisis, right? And so it's interesting to be able to sit there with them. And what I like to do is after the crisis subsides, we have what we call, what I call truth time, right? Where we sit there and we recite the truth in our lives so we can see where we are. And sometimes that truth time is good. Sometimes that truth time is bad. Sometimes that brings things out that isn't so good as we try to re, uh, reimagine where we are in our life. And that's what he's doing here. He's having that truth time with her. And all of a sudden she gets real. I almost get the impression at this moment she just sort of sinks down and sits. Because that's what I would do. I wouldn't be able to see, keep standing at this point. I mean, the wood said, she says, sir. And for the first time, she actually uses a, um, a, a sign of respect. It's not quite Lord. It's a different word altogether. Um, uh, but it's, it's an interesting little passage. And, and, and in the New American Standard, it's, it's translated correctly when, when it says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. And, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. And she was getting ready to, to, to go right deep in this. But notice what else she's doing here. She sidesteps her sin, right? I mean, he just threw it all out there, right? He just said, boom, here it is. You want to have this living water? You want to meet me? You want to do what you say you want to do, which is never draw this water again to be able to truly be filled for life? We need to deal with this major sin in your life. And she says, okay, let's not. Let's talk about something else. Has that ever happened to you guys when you're talking to people? It happens to me all the time. It's amazing. As soon as they find out I'm a preacher, it's like, it's amazing how they start doing that, 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 that I'm a really good person dance, you know? As they start to, to make you, to prove to you that they're, they're actually doing good. I met this one guy who was a veteran, and, and um, he was so concerned that somebody was going to call him a, um, uh, one of those stolen valor people that, I mean, he even, as he's sidestepping around all the things he doesn't really want to talk about but needs to, and he gets this up and goes, just to prove that I'm really a veteran, he pulls out his, his, his ID card that says he's a veteran. And he goes, I I just want you to see this. I'm like, I need to ask for that. I was good with you saying you're a veteran. I can take you at your word. I don't need you to prove it to me. But this happens occasionally. And this is what she's doing. She says, well, I'm not going to deal with my sin, but I am going to, I'm going to speak religious speak, right? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to use the language you guys are talking about. Maybe we can get off this whole topic of just me, right? Because this is getting really uncomfortable here. But Jesus isn't going to give her, she's not, he's not giving her an out. He's diving deep, deep into this. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Because you will worship, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Obviously, he's talking about this salvation moment that's coming through the Messiah. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now again, he's nothing new here. Earlier I read you a passage from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. Now I'm going to read you Isaiah chapter 55, verse 4 and 5. Right after the 1 through 3. This is what the Lord continues to say after he talked about that whole inclining your ear. Why are you working for that which doesn't satisfy? He goes on to say, Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Talking about David. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know, you shall run, um, you shall run because the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, has been glorified. He's referring to, obviously, himself. And he's saying that there's going to come a day when this whole tribal worship that we're talking about isn't going to exist anymore. That we're going to reach out to the Samaritans. We're going to reach out to the Gentiles. We're going to reach out to the barbarians beyond the Roman Empire. We're going to reach out to everyone that feels the need and is drawn to God. And that comes up to our point number three. We have The first point was our well needs to be deep. Our well needs to be maintained, which is point number two. And point number three is who keeps water just for water's sake, right? What do we do with the water once we have it? Now we drink it and we share it. We have to take it out. And this is exactly what he's teaching her. He's teaching her the premise that the Father is seeking people who want to be worshipers. And we know that God is spirit, according to what Jesus said. And those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The rest of the story is pretty plain. He reveals her, him to her. He reveals himself to her. You see that in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. This one, this Messiah, the Christ. Amen. You know, I love that phrase. John has seven or eight of these times where he says this in his Gospels as he's repeating what Jesus said. This I am he moment. I am the one. The word there in Greek is ego emi. It means simply I am that I am. And this is a powerful moment in her life. You see, the Samaritans believed that a prophet was coming. And you know, I tell you, you talk to people today and you're going to see people are looking for some kind of hope, something that may come, something that may be able to, to change their existence. They just don't know what that hope is. When I was in Florida, I think in the late, mid to late 80s, um, they, they decided to pass the law about the lottery, right? And they sold the state that lie that all the money that's raised in the lottery will go for the schools and all this other stuff. I'm sure you guys have heard that. Similar stories here. I think we had some legislation recently passed and, and the idea that, that money's going to be raised and generated and our kids are going to benefit out of this, this sin tax that we have. But the sad part about it is that it really doesn't happen that way. But after that lottery system happened, I was working very closely in the medical field with Medicare and Medicaid patients. And I want to say every single home that I went into, and I would sometimes go to as many as 10 or 15 different homes a day. In every single home, in these low-income families, on every single kitchen table, there'd be the remnants of a lottery lost. 
tickets that weren't winners, that had yet to be thrown away, as people are reaching out for something bigger than themselves, for a dream that may never come. You know, it's at those moments we have to ask ourselves, what are we really reaching towards? Where's our hope? Jesus is our hope. He's the one we reach to. This woman had a very lengthy conversation with Jesus. And I find it interesting that we have, of all the discussions that we find in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, Nicodemus and this woman is the two largest discussions we have. And we have two contrasts. We have a woman who has evidently had problems with her, sin, with her life. She had five husbands, and the man that she was married to at that, or with, living with at that point wasn't even her husband. You can see that the world had deeply wounded this woman. She'd been married five times. And at some point in the, in the history of her life, in those five marriages, it had come to her that she wasn't going to find salvation in marriage. And the marriage wasn't even worth it anymore. So why bother going through the emotions? He's just going to leave anyway. The average Jewish man, average, I shouldn't say average, the acceptable number of divorces in a Jewish home was three of that day. So she was well past that. She was working on number six. And I think she, I don't know about you guys, but I get the sense of reading this that she was pretty resigned. She wasn't going to go any further. Now you contrast that with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, an individual that should have known all this. And Jesus came right at him. He said to him, Nicodemus, you're, a, you're, you're the ruler. You're the ruler of the Jews. You're the one that should know all this stuff, and yet you don't. And it says that when Nicodemus left, he left pondering everything that he had heard, but no changes had really made. Look at the contrast here. Verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This, is this not the Christ? She left the water pot, the reason she came to the well to begin with, and left with a message for her entire village to hear. And I think this is coming up to those three points that I was talking about. What's in our well? Where are we at with Christ? Our well should be dug deep. And I know some of you are sitting there saying, well, my well's pretty deep. Well, just when you think your well is deep enough, dig a little deeper, brother. Dig a little deeper. Because there is no depth gauge when it comes to our Christianity. We just keep going. Jesus says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, right? That's what he says. That's his promise. You're going to spend your entire life drawing near to him. But it's a dance, right? It's a dance. We step closer, he steps closer, we step back, do a two-step, and we step closer, right? That's the way it is. I learned this last year, I did a play. What play was that? My Fair Lady? That's right, I was in My Fair Lady. And I learned for the first time the, the jazz dance without moving, right? You stand in one spot, you go up, you step, you go over, step, back, step, and then you go back to where you started from, right? Did I do that right, Phil? 
I don't think I did that right. I get close, right? I, it, there was some movement, some hands, some hands like this. But we did that, right? But I thought it was amazing that I could do all this movement on stage and end up right back where I started from, right? But that's somehow it is with our dance with God. Sometimes it feels like we move, we wiggle, we, we do all these crazy things with God as we try to draw closer to Him. And He's there. Every time we take a step closer, He takes a step closer, right? And so we do that. But, but we know that that intimacy is hard, just like it was for her. Every time that He would draw closer to her, she would throw up a wall, right? She would throw up something. She would sidestep. She would move over here because ultimately when it comes down to it our sin is hard to deal with and just as we grab one and we throttle it and kill it we realize there's more sin there right truth is we'll never be sin free until we're in heaven but as we move forward as we dig this life well we dig it deep but we have to maintain it because, you know, I tell you, and even in, back in those days, if you had a well, you didn't just leave it open to the air for anyone to get into. You had to cover it. Because who knows what would fall in that well? Who knows what would get in there when, you were, when it was unattended? That's why in the scenes in the Old Testament, you have stories of Moses and, and Jacob and the rest of these guys. They would come to the well, and it would be covered over with a big stone. They had to protect the water because it's a precious resource. We've got to maintain and protect the water that God has in our well. But we don't hoard it. We have to share it. This woman knew that story. She understood that. She realized exactly what was happening and she shared the story with the men. Now it goes on. I wish we could spend more time reading this, but it's a, it's a powerful story. It goes all the way down to 42. And I encourage you guys to read this because Jesus turns his attention to his disciples who show up late to the game as always. And he has to have that teaching moment with them. And then the the elders of the village come and he has that teaching moment with them. But the truth of the matter is, the story really ends right here. As the woman leaves Jesus and brings the message to those that need it. So if you ask me where the, 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 the charge is this week, it's this. We should all be in the business of maintaining and digging our wells. And sharing the water that God gives us. Because that's what Jesus talks about that living water that bubbles continuously from us as we seek to share that with those that need it. I've had the privilege this week of meeting several individuals that are struggling in this community. If you were in Sunday school, I gave you the name of one young man. I won't do it in the pulpit because I just don't want to do that. If you're in Sunday school, I gave you the name of one individual that needs prayer desperately. But it's amazing to me, you don't have to look hard to hear the stories of tragedy and sadness in this community. You just have to open your mouth, be available, allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, and be willing to share your faith, willing to share the message that God has given you. The Bible says we should be prepared at any moment to give a defense for the help that lies within us. Are we prepared to give that defense to a world that needs it? Truth is, if we have nothing in our well, we can't share it. We just can't. If, all, if your only well consists of a small little pail for sand that normally should have sand that's sitting out in your front yard and just hoping that it rains hard that week so you can get a little bit of water, how can you share that? That's barely enough to keep you alive. The reason why we dig our wells deep is so we have plenty of water to share. The reason why we maintain it so that it's pure and it's tasty so that when we share the water, it's not bitter and full of hypocrisy. When we walk into the lives of other people, we need to be prepared to share in an appropriate way. 
Now, I know I'm saying all this, and there may be one or two, maybe even 10 or 12 of us that are sitting here that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Many years ago, when I started this journey, I was 16 years old. The old preacher gave the invitation, and he said, if the Lord's moving, you come down. If the Lord has rocked your world, come on down. If the Lord has a word for you to speak, come on down. If the Lord has something for you to do, whether it's salvation or, or service, come on down. His name was Don Long, probably the most fire and brimstone man I ever met. He couldn't, he couldn't talk for 10 minutes without throwing in some kind of a uh, fire and burn, brimstone kind of message. He was just that kind of guy. He was intense. You walk up to him, you shake his hand. He was an old, um, he was an old railroad guy. And so his hands, I mean, were just like massive bear paws, right? And how he even made a fist, I don't know. But he'd grab a hold of you and he'd grip you really hard and pull you in and he'd look you in the eye and he goes, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, you're not hearing a word I'm saying. He's just waiting for a moment to tell you about Jesus, right? That's all he wanted to do was tell you about Jesus. I love that guy. He gave that message. I went down front. I felt like the Lord was calling me into the ministry. I felt like I wanted to be a preacher. I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. And I told him that. And he looked me in the eye and he goes, we'll see about that. And he said, I want you to meet me next Sunday morning at 9.30 in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in this room behind the sanctuary. You and three other boys, we're going to get together and we're going to see if God really has called you into the ministry. And he did everything he could to discourage us. And of those boys that were in that room, none of us went in the ministry for years. He said to me something that was still pretty powerful in my life. He said, Al, if you're going to be a preacher, you need to know this, that every single soul that comes into the building that hears you speak, their soul is going to be held account to what you say. And if these people come in and sit down and hear you preach, and they get up and they don't hear the gospel message, they don't hear the message of life and liberty that Jesus brings, they don't understand that they can freely accept the word of God and freely understand that Jesus died for them on the cross and, and wants to make a way for them to be able to be sons and daughters of the living God, to be able to call themselves Christians, to embrace a holy God, and to walk a life of, of never-ending love of God if they don't hear the message of salvation in the gospel and they die and go to hell, their blood is going to be on your hands. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for a 16-year-old kid, that was way too heavy. I couldn't handle it. And after hearing him speak for a few weeks, I realized this was too much for me. And so I said, God, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for the opportunity, but I think I'm going to do something else, right? And so I had other dreams that I wanted to do. I, I loved archaeology. I loved history. I loved this. I, I had lots of loves at that point. But the only love I didn't have was a love to do what God called me to do. And for 12 years, I struggled to try to convince God that he had made a huge mistake. He didn't make a mistake. He loved me too much to let me make a mistake. And so... Twelve years later, he came to me in a hospital room. An old man in a diabetic coma who I had taken care of for three nights. Never been awake. I walked into his room. He looked me in the eye and he said, Al, what are you doing here? My name's Albert. That's a little secret that I don't want to share with anyone. So, 
outside this room that's between you and I, please don't share that. It's a horrible name for a child to be saddled with. Don't name your kids that. Don't name anybody you know that. Don't even name a dog that. It's not a good name. My name badge had Albert. So the fact that he called me Al was kind of significant, although I didn't think at the moment. I thought he was hard of hearing because we're trained as medical professionals. When you walk into a room, you tell them what you're there for, right? Because you don't want to surprise an, old, an elderly individual by just slapping the blood pressure cuff on him and sticking a thermometer in his mouth when he's not even waiting for it. You know, that can be really scary for someone. So we share with them what we're doing. I thought he was hard of hearing. I said, well, Mr. Tullis, that was his name. Mr. Tullis, I'm here to do thus and such. He shook his head and he said, no, you're not hearing me. Now, what are you doing here? I still thought he was hard of hearing. I'm kind of thick. I repeated myself again for a third time. And he said to me, he looked me in the eye, and he said, Al, God's called you to be a preacher. And if you don't do it, he's going to get really angry with you. That hit me. I sat down for the next 45 minutes to an hour and just talked to this man. There's more to the story. Time is fleeting. We talk later. The end of the story was I left that man's room. I went to the nurse's station and I called every seminary in town. And the first one that called me back, I signed up for classes. I took a year and a half and I finished a master's degree. I was doing classes every second of every minute of every day. I'd get st- stopped at, at streetlights because in the middle of the streetlight, I'm trying to do classwork. I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. So when I hear this story of this woman and how she left everything to follow Jesus, to share that message, it's powerful. And I know there might be some people here today that don't know Jesus Christ, their Savior. And maybe God isn't going to wait until you walk into a hospital room and, and wake a guy up from a coma and give you a message. Maybe your message is right here, right now. Maybe your message is coming through fat, short, balding preacher with a horrible first name. Maybe God's saying, what are you going to do with what I've called you to do? I don't believe that everyone here is called to be a preacher, but I know all of us here are called to something. So I'm going to start this, I'm going to end this off with what I started with. What's in your well? If it's not Jesus, well, that's where you start. If it is, dig a little deeper and do what he's called you to do. We're going to go before the Lord in prayer as we open the altar. Father, I love you. There's no easy way to end a sermon like this, Father. Because I know, Lord, you have so much that you want to share with us in your word. And I know the book of John just sucks us deeper and deeper, Lord, as we get to taste a little bit of what you shared with your best friend, the disciple whom you loved. Father, I ask this morning as we seek to know you and honor you, as we seek to love you and follow you, Father, I ask that you will guide us. Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, if there's anyone in here that's never accepted you as, their pers- as your personal Savior, Father, I ask that you will not let them leave here today without getting their heart right. Father, for the rest of us that know and love you well, and Father, I know that many of us in here have served you for many years. 
Father, I ask that you'll solidify our call, that you'll give us a pathway forward. And whether it's just taking care of our kids and moving forward for this moment, or whether it's going deeper into the ministry, Father, I don't know what your call is on each of us, but I know what you've called me to do. Father, I ask that you'll guide us down the road that you have called us to and help us to be your servants. Father, I ask that you just be with everyone this morning as we seek to love you and honor you and go forward in the word that's been mentioned today as we seek to follow the example of the woman at the well to share what we know as we dig that deep, deeper well and seek to maintain it for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, Brother Phil. If you'll stand.